Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. A recurring theme on Translating Aging is innovation and funding research and clinical development in longevity science. We've talked to a distributed company that builds a family of companies, rapid turnaround grant programs to seed bold projects that might be ignored by conventional funding agencies, and in one case, an impressively funded entity focusing on rejuvenation that in some sense is the largest biotech startup in history. Today, we're going to be exploring another innovative way to bring resources into the longevity field, VitaDAO an effort to collectively fund and advance longevity research in an open and democratic manner. VitaDAO is a DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, in some sense, like a venture capital fund based on open source code and without a typical management structure or board of directors. Because decentralized virtual entities are difficult to interview, we have two human beings representing VitaDAO on the show today. They are founding steward Tyler Galato and DealFlow steward Lawrence Ion. Lawrence and Tyler, thanks for being on the show. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm honored. Huge fan. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, let's start at the very beginning for our listeners that might not be familiar. What's a DAO? So a DAO, as you mentioned, is a decentralized autonomous organization. Uh, and maybe the easiest way to think about this is really something that's akin to a digital collective, where the bylaws of that collective are basically built into code. So code is sort of law in these cases. And DAOs are relatively new organizational structures. They're mediated by smart contracts, where basically members in the organization receive tokens. They can typically obtain those tokens by either contributing funding or work. For example, in the case of BetaDAO, a researcher who gives their time to, put our, to evaluate deals. And then they use those tokens to vote yes or no on proposals that are also made by members. And those proposals could be something like funding uh, a piece of early-stage preclinical drug development out of an academic laboratory. Historically, DAOs have been used pretty largely in a venture context, mostly in the context of, of software development on protocols like Ethereum. But we're beginning to see the technology translate out to other areas, such as the scientists, sciences, for example, uh, where people are beginning to look at creating sort of therapeutic areas, specific DAOs that try to bring together researchers, patients, enthusiasts, anyone with a strong interest in funding in a particular field, and sort of leveraging crowd expertise to, to deploy funding into that particular environment. But I think, you know, when I'm talking about this subject to sort of lay audiences or those that are not particularly tech savvy or deep in the Web3 space, it's really nothing more than a, a membership association with a shared goal and without sort of traditional top-down management structures. So sort of much more egalitarian in terms of how it's actually governed and how it's actually run. That's an awesome introduction to the general case. Let's talk about the specific case. Where did VitaDAO come from and how was it formed? Yeah, so VitaDAO was born out of uh, an early concept that we had been working on at a company called Molecule, which is a company that I co-founded about three years ago with a vision of doing decentralized drug development. Uh, so this really plays into the, the idea that today, most pharmaceutical companies are sort of vertically disintegrated. They source most of their innovation out of academia, largely through outlicensing or by through mergers and acquisition of biotechs. But there are many therapeutics that are sort of, you know, either not focused on by the incumbent pharmaceutical companies for a number of reasons. Aging, for example, I, I think largely because aging is not considered a disease that you can target in the clinic. 
but other things like rare diseases, for example, where, you know, in many cases, the, the economics just don't make sense for a pharmaceutical company. And we've had this vision of really trying to change incentive structures around drug development to really bring together core stakeholders that, say, have a, a sort of vested interest because maybe they're a patient or uh, maybe have family, for example, that are patients and want to see something done differently with drug development. So the idea here is to basically create structures where patients themselves researchers, anyone that's actually contributing to value creation in a particular therapeutic area would be able to fund research in exchange for ownership and governance over the intellectual property that results from the experiments that they fund. And VitaDAO is really the first use case for this. So it's the first biotech-specific DAO. And I'm a biogerontologist by, by training. Uh, I trained at the National Institute on Aging. It's, it's a passion of mine. I think it's something that it's going to be responsible for a paradigm shift in terms of how we approach medicine in general. And it's also strategically an area that has a very high sort of product market fit or, or ideological overlap with, with Web3. So, you know, it's, if you're looking at sort of testing this idea of, you know, can a BioDAO actually function? Can it function and mimic successful execution patterns of a biotech company in a decentralized way? Longevity is a sort of great place to start. One, because it has touch points with sort of every other therapeutic area. And two, because there's a lot of tech savvy people in Web3 that are ideologically interested in longevity. Yeah, but I would also love to hear sort of Lawrence's origin story as well, because I think everyone comes at this collective sort of bringing, you know, a bit of their own motivation. Usually DAOs are making software, just interacting within the Web3 crypto space. And uh, I think VitaDAO is the first one to fund real-world research, to really interact with the real world. And and that's uh, th- this IP NFT framework that Molecule invented is sort of a bridge between a, a legal contract and uh, this NFT, non-fungible token, therefore giving such an organization that is not incorporated with any uh, secretary of state or you know government entity but it's just formed on on ethereum it's a smart contract and with it it has a token which allows people to to sort of coordinate towards a common goal by voting with those tokens and yeah that that uh, is i think really innovative and, and it really makes sense that's fantastic lawrence i'm also really interested in hearing how you personally got involved in vita I've been passionate about longevity for a long time. I wasn't necessarily involved uh, in any way. I didn't think I needed to. I've taught myself computer science, but also huge passion for biology. So I taught myself molecular biology recently in the past few years. So I was going about making an impact in the world through tech startups. That's what I did most of my career. But when I noticed... uh, Things are not progressing that fast, and and I personally am very curious to see the the future. And uh, I also have uh, I've have had many run-ins with medicine doctors and so on. Um, so I always I thought I I saw impact to my own personal life, even medium term, even if we don't make it to longevity escape velocity. But um, I was also passionate about crypto ever since I was, you know, a freshman in college, I think 2012, 13, I just liked the name Bitcoin. So <laughs> I, I just kind of got in and out. And I think around 2016, 17, I got into Ethereum to uh, code smart contracts. And I heard about DAOs. I think I was at Burning Man when I 
really decided to work with some people to make a longevity DAO. And the way I was thinking about it was to donate to longevity because there was no way to make it as, um, to sort of flow back any sort of profits. But when I saw Molecule's IPNFT framework, I thought, finally, not only do I get it, but I think the world will get it. And so I dropped everything and joined. And the, the reason why I wanted to make this longevity DAO and I joined VitaDAO is because there's this strong overlap between crypto and longevity. And you, ha- you see the, the key opinion leaders like Vitalik and Balaji and, and Brian Armstrong and, and so on, many billionaires to be very, very much aligned with longevity. And it kind of makes sense because both fields have been dismissed by the incumbents. It really aligns the most forward thinking economically with the most forward thinking scientifically. And you have a lot of this, these newly minted millionaires and billionaires that are interested in, in impact and, and changing the direction of humanity. And they have the courage to do so. It's not uh, such a crazy idea to them to do medicine in this new way and, you know, tackling aging itself as, a, as a, I guess I don't need to tell your audience about this, but uh, yeah, it's uh, quite uh, world changing, I would say. You're certainly going to get no argument from BioAge about that. All right, let's <laughs> move forward to operational details. How does a DAO fund science? And actually, maybe before we get to that, how does an entity like a DAO decide to do anything? Like I'm basically asking you about governance and how decisions end up being made. It's initially a, a pretty tough process, but a, meaning that one of the core goals early on is to establish a basic foundational framework, both from an operational perspective and a governance perspective that distributes autonomy to you know some, let's say, working groups or core folks within the organization so that small decisions below a certain threshold below a certain st- spending amount, don't require a really long, laborious voting process. So I, I think a lot of people think of decentralization as the goal in many cases, but I, I personally, and I think many others that work in the DAO space, really consider decentralization a, a tool in the tool set and, and you know something to basically maximize participation in, in certain areas, but also something that can actually be a huge pitfall in many cases. So for example, if you want to write an article about BetaDAO, it doesn't make sense to have 3,000 people weighing in on how that article should be written (laughs) because you would never get anything done. So I think the first question that you ask yourself are sort of what are the core areas where decentralization will be really meaningful in terms of increasing the efficiency, the output, and the knowledge base of the community. And for us, this was on something like sourcing deals, sourcing projects, evaluating projects, understanding the IP use case for projects, and doing scientific education to the community. Because these are areas where you benefit from broad domain expertise, broad domain knowledge, people in different jurisdictions with different skill sets actually coming together and meaningfully contributing to this sort of growing body of knowledge and body of resources. But there's a lot of areas, for example, from an operational perspective, where you actually you know, want to have a couple of people really doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the background and in, in some ways operating like a lean startup. So what VitaDAO did early on was we created a sort of three-phase governance process with different tiers, which goes initially from Discord, which for those that aren't familiar is basically like a, a sort of server-based Slack-like communication channel that was initially used in the gaming space, but is now heavily used in crypto. And there's this mechanism that's called soft governance, which is basically if something doesn't require spending money from the treasury and maybe doesn't impact so many people, you might have a governance mechanism that, as 
ridiculous as this sounds, is based on sort of emoji-based voting. So like uploading and downvoting, similar to, to the way things happen on, on Reddit. So are you guys okay with moving forward with this? Maybe we need 10 people to say yes or no over a period of time. Those people upvote or downvote, and then a decision is made. And so that's pretty lean. For Then there's another phase of governance that is what we call phase two governance, and this is sort of more formalized. So if somebody brings a proposal to the DAO that, you know, they would like to fund a a particular research project, or let's say a a research project applies, this is basically discussed in in a forum. You could actually check this out if you're interested. It's govgov.vitadao.com. And this is a platform called Discourse, where people basically, you know, debate the merit of a project. In some cases, they, they add things that they would like to see. They add input on like, you know, maybe they think this experiment is good. Maybe they think the budget is too high. Maybe they think the team uh, could use a, a collaborator. All these sort of things are discussed at, at length. And then people typically vote on whether or not a project should go to phase three governance, which is the final stage where uh, a token-based vote happens. This is, if you go to dao.b2dao.com, you could see proposals that are live. You could see the addresses, the wallet addresses of everyone that votes, and you basically vote yes or no on a proposal that has already been fleshed out in detail in this sort of phase two stage of governance. And then within this, there are also a bunch of things where you know you sort of decide, and the community votes on this, what is the threshold at which a token-based vote should be considered? So for VitaDAO, I believe in many cases, individual working groups have a budget, and if an expense exceeds $40,000, we need to have a, or $50,000, we need to have a token-based vote. There's also some individual thresholds. But in the end, most of the major decisions that where you need a lot of governance, and let's say you, you want the whole community to get involved, really relates to decisions around spending large amount of money from the treasury. A lot of the other mechanisms you sort of have working group stewards that act like leaders with a certain amount of responsibility and accountability and working group members that also have some amount of autonomy in getting things done. So it's not completely open, completely decentralized to the point where it's paralyzing for the organization, but we try to look at the things that are, let's say, most valuable to sort of decentralize and and have broad input on in order to make the organization as maximally efficient as possible. Okay, I'm getting a sense of the picture. So in terms of funding in particular, a scientist uh, outside the organization makes a proposal, it comes into the system, and then it undergoes a fair amount of preliminary evaluation and review before it comes to a token-based vote. And that is subsequent to a larger discussion and debate and possibly amendment to the proposal. And then ultimately, in an analogy to something like shareholder democracy, people can vote in proportion to their ownership of the token that the organization kind of uses as its core currency. Am I getting that right? Yeah, 100%. I would um, amend a few things. Um, usually, scientists don't come with a full proposal at the beginning. Most of the projects are actually sourced either by the working group members or we have this bounty out for all the bounty hunters to go and source and refer projects to us, make the, make an introduction. And, and that's a huge way, I think, huge advantage in how we scale and have these network effects that you'll see repeatedly around this model. And we work a lot with the researcher to sort of incubate the project way before it goes to a vote to the community. Uh, we find that having a sort of seven-day delay or, or sometimes 14-day, depends on, on how you look at it, delay for, for each change is not necessarily the best. So if 
if if it's in phase two where it's on on the forum and people can comment and and there's just like one person one vote yeah people can suggest amendments and that's fine but for any amendment then we we need to wait another seven days to let the community sort of digest that and, and see if they have further amendments before we go to uh, phase three and token holders vote you know one token one vote so we do tend to internally just iterate quickly with the researcher, um, help them develop a better IP strategy. A lot of the times, you know, academics are a lot of times uh, just sort of used to writing papers and, and just researching a lot of interesting things. And of course, if if it's basic research, we don't want to mess with that. I, I think that's, that's the most valuable. That's where the most valuable insights are going to, and discoveries are going to come from, from unexpected places. And we shouldn't direct that towards any sort of outcome. But if the, the research is translational, then a lot of times, yes, we can, instead of a repurposing project, we could make a new screen, for example, small change, not, you know, that the whole plan is almost the same, but huge difference in terms of IP protection. <laughs> gotcha. And actually, you're really helping me understand something about that I was wondering, I, I looked over the proposals page, and anyone can do this uh, on the Vita.Web website. Um, and I noted that the approval rate for proposals that came to a vote is it's a hundred percent and the electoral margins, if you will, are also overwhelming. Like in general, things are approved by nearly unanimous consent. But now that I understand that there's not just preliminary evaluation of proposals, but actually a lot of back and forth so that by the time something comes to a token based vote, most people who are involved in that voting have expressed have, have have issued criticism that criticism has been answered the proposal has evolved in a way that is likely to attract that kind of consensus approval also is still permissionless people could still put up a proposal for a vote and if if they get 10 votes on the forum then it automatically goes to phase three for token holders vote but that hasn't really happened for anyone external to just propose something without talking to the team first and going through the back and forth. But even then, they would get 10 friends to you know, upvote that or something. Even then, we can still, we have this sort of, you know, longevity deal flow working group, right, with experts curated. And um, we have this concept of senior reviewer. And we can ask for any proposal within those seven days, we can ask the we can ask three to five reviewers Hey, please give your opinion here. And that's kind of a stamp of approval. Or, you know, we can say the senior viewers need to see ABC before they're ready to put that stamp of approval. So that's how we sort of inform the token holders. We don't block any proposal, so anyone can put it, but it will be, hey, you know, we're not like we're not ready to recommend you guys funding this. I think there's there's a couple of really important things to understand with respect to you know, what actually goes into a proposal making it to, to phase three from a funding perspective. And in essence, you know, there are a number of steps from the point that an application is submitted to the point that a deal is finalized. And, and in many cases, these steps can take two, three, four months. This involves, for example, the longevity working group, which consists of domain experts, going back and forth in many cases with the academic to actually 
work with them and make the project stronger. It involves IP lawyers uh, doing an analysis and really looking at the sort of space that exists uh, regarding prior art in a, in a specific domain and try, for us to try to understand, is there a way for the DAO to be able to capture value? Is there a way for us to be able to file for IP here? And again, this is maybe just important for listeners to understand. The mechanism is not for Vita DAO to be profitable for its token holders, but rather for the DAO itself to be sustainable as a funding mechanism. So the idea here is that we work on really a strong focus on translational research. And the goal is to actually commercialize that translational research, whether it's through out-licensing, partnering, continuing to develop the therapeutic to the point of clinic or to market internally. And then any proceeds from those commercial revenues that might be generated go back into the Dow Treasury to fund additional research. So there is this strong focus on, on translation. And then on, on the tail end of the deal, we also need to negotiate with the tech transfer office in many cases. We need to negotiate the licensing terms. These are typically slow, slow moving entities. So a lot of this is happening. Uh, there's a huge amount of discussion. If you're part of the Discord, if you're part of the discourse, if you're part of the working group, so you can participate in all of these discussions and really help shape the project. But by the time that the deal actually arrives at phase three governance, what you have is something that has really been worked on by this community in some cases for, for months. And, you know, you're, you're basically getting, I would say to date, the things that uh, have arrived at phase three governance have done so with an endorsement from the community that this is something that we're interested in funding. And so I think this is also a really important mechanism because VitaDAO, again, it's permissionless. Anyone can become a token holder, but you know, not everyone has the wherewithal or the background to make meaningful decisions or do meaningful due diligence on a scientific project or a research project. So we really try to make it as easy as possible for token holders to make informed decisions about whether or not something is ultimately worth funding. And we like to do so once we're at the point where we ensure that we can actually, you know, progress with a deal, for example. I'm sure our listeners would be interested in knowing some details about the kinds of projects that VitaDAO has supported so far. So uh, what's in the hopper? I can tell you a project with the Sense Research Foundation just closed voting, I think, yesterday, and it was successful. I'm super happy about that. About It's a ApoptoSense. It's a, about senolytic CAR NK cells, so chimeric antigen receptor uh, natural killer cells. You, you might have heard about CAR T cells a lot. Once or twice. Yeah, <laughs> the CAR NK cells, and, and they go after senescent cells. Oh, wow. Then there's a, a new one that um, I think just got, went out for voting today, I think, or, or yesterday. It's a proposal to fund a doctoral student uh, for four years at Imperial College in um, London. It's a project to probe these DNA quadruplexes for age-related proteostasis. And that's sort of like a much earlier stage. And, and we'll see what kind of IP will come out from that. But I'm, I'm super excited to start out these kinds of collaborations with universities. We've also funded a bunch of, you, you can see on our website, like mitophagy activators and autophagy activators and uh, some startups like Rubetto and Turn. And uh, in the first project, of course, with Morton, Shabai Knudsen at the University of Copenhagen, there's so many and some nonprofit initiatives as well. We've we've supported a, a clinical trial by Brad Stanfield on uh, looking at rapamycin and exercise and, uh, you know, a movie about longevity. So, so sort of like on the advocacy side, very important for for. Actually, that's not, that's not a donation, but yeah, it's just uh, sort of working with the Vitality Health Fund Foundation 
which is a related foundation that got a loan from Viradao to support projects that both of the organizations are looking at. Yeah, and so a, a lot of uh, projects that you can see, some of them on the website are featured, but also all of them were Tyler mentioned on gov.vidadao.com on, on the, the governance forum. Yeah, if you go to the governance forum directly, you can look at uh, all the past proposals that have passed. And I would say the sort of defining thread uh, of, you know, we're interested in really supporting people over projects. I would say the project has to be there. The scientific quality has to be there. And ideally, there's a translational component. But, you know, we are distinctly different from a venture fund in in terms of our endpoint is is not really ROI. impact. It's really impact in the space. And that comes in many different forms. In terms of taking a diversified approach to funding longevity research, some of this is, you know, things like advocacy, things like, uh, you know, regulatory, things like, uh, you know, basic research that might not have a translational component, but would just have such a strong net positive for the entire field that it would be a mistake not to fund it. And in the end, in the end when we're thinking about our own strategy, the one thing that has to be true is the organization itself has longevity and is sustainable. But Ultimately, if someone's interested in these decentralized funding approaches, has a great idea, is a great investigator, and has struggled with the typical forms of funding that exist, whether that be you know grant funding or maybe they're a bit too early to create a startup, we really think that this is our sweet spot. We mostly distribute checks. I would say that the you know the average is around 250k, which for a lot of people is a meaningful amount of money to do preclinical research and get their project to a stage where it can ultimately garner additional investment from a biotech company or a pharmaceutical company that's interested in in further developing it. But it, I would say that if I had to summarize in one sentence what the sort of sweet spot is, it's really what we would call in the field the, the translational valley of death, where a lot of innovation gets stuck sort of at the phase between no longer being really eligible for grant funding because it's becoming a product, but but maybe not far enough along to have the sort of data package that it would need to be incubated as a startup. I want to move in the direction of talking about sort of money and the sustainability of the organization. Now, my understanding of this stuff is pretty 20th century, so this might be a naive question. In order to fund research, at some point in the in the pipeline, you need money in the form of fiat currency. So first question is, where did that initial base of financial resources come from when Vita Dow was getting off the ground uh, last year? We launched through what I believe is maybe one of the most innovative and fair mechanisms in in the crypto space when it comes to launching projects, which is referred to as, as a fair launch. Basically, what happens is the token is created. And all the tokens are not minted. So only about 10% of the total token supply are minted. And they're put into something called a Gnosis auction, which is basically a Dutch auction or a batch auction, where a, a group of people define a token price and a quantity that they would be willing to pay. And then based on the highest bids, the sort of order book is filled backwards, and everyone ends up getting tokens at the same price. So VitaDAO was basically launched to a group of people that believed that the, the project had value, that were long-term incentivized and long-term aligned to put money into the project. And then the people that actually built VitaDAO, the team molecule the the working groups everyone who had spent you know probably 6 months before that actually conceiving the project makes a proposal to that community of initial initial token holders that put in capital to get an allocation ourselves so that we could vote but it's actually fully at the mercy of the community this is something that i think a lot of people avoid doing because it's high risk for example the the initial community of token holders could have said like well, it's great that you built this, but you know we don't think you should get any tokens. 
but it, it actually creates a huge amount of trust in that initial community that the team is well in, is, is well aligned with them in, in, in terms of everything going forward. So, you know, we had a really interesting mix of people. There were about 700 participants in that auction. Many of them are, you know, Ethereum OGs, people who have been in the ecosystem a long time, biotech angel investors, people that are interested just broadly in, at the intersection of, of crypto and longevity. And then we basically made a proposal to them uh, to have you know, the additional tokens uh, that would be distributed to the working groups, to the sort of team that built this. And then together, that group of people, what, what are now called working groups, service providers, and this initial token community basically govern over the remaining pool of tokens in the Dow Treasury, vote on proposals, how to, how to move forward. So you have this sort of initial injection of capital. And then the goal is after that, we can collectively together choose to mint more tokens and have another auction, for example, to bring in additional liquidity into the Treasury. Or we can try to, you know, which can get you so far, but if, you know, there is a finite supply of tokens. There's a little over 64 million, which is the number of minutes that the longest person to ever live was alive, uh, which I think is, is, is pretty nice. But, you know, at a certain point, all of those tokens will be distributed and VitaDAO at that point really needs to be sustainable as a function of its commercial efforts. So that's sort of how the funding mechanics work over time. And one other thing that I think is really interesting is that we managed to launch this uh, without any fundraising from venture capital at all. And this is actually quite valuable because a lot of times what you see happen in crypto is that people launch tokens to uh, a VC community first and then later to retail. And retail often looks at the community as their first liquidity event and their first exit. So you tend to have this sort of VC dumping on retail and dumping on the community. But in the way that we did it, it's really not possible. So now VitaDAO is actually exploring, are there value-add investors you know, VCs, for example, that the community might want to bring in and the community can vote to actually allocate them a certain amount of funding to raise money for the DAO. But it's really at the mercy of a community decision as opposed to, you know, VCs coming in first and then in, in many cases actually dumping on retail that comes in later. Yeah, we actually had a vote um, a few weeks ago to mint another 10% of the token supply for such strategic contributors that might want to join institutional biotech or Web3 entities. And we see a lot of value in that, not only through partnerships like uh, we have with Apollo Ventures, where especially company builder VCs would be able to take um, the projects that we've funded and we've de-risked for them and now are ready to spin out the new goal. But also, even if we spin out the new goal, then these contributors can vote on what projects are funded, how are they spun out, and then they can co-invest and, and sort of help these therapeutics eventually come to market. So it's just, you can see how having such institutional contributors now at this point might make sense. And we just voted for the, for the mint of the tokens and now they have been issued, but we still have to vote on, on a specific list on, on what each contributor would bring to the table, to the community. And uh, ultimately, yeah, we'll see if that list gets uh, approved by the token holders again. Cool. So that really helps me understand kind of where the money came from and how you could raise liquidity in the future. Speaking about the future, I want to steer the discussion in the direction of how could VitaDAO become self-sustaining by bringing in income from the things that it owns as a result of the support that it gives 
to research and development in the longevity space? I think the primary mechanism that we're looking at at the moment, there are, are probably two or three. In the long run, what we really hope is to attract enough liquidity into our ecosystem to really be able to do end-to-end drug development. And what that might look like functionally is Vitadel leveraging academic laboratories as collaborators or contract research organizations to carry out work downstream, and then potentially working with partners to actually further incubate the IP through clinical trials and bring it to market. But that would require having a huge amount of liquidity in the ecosystem, probably on the scale of hundreds of millions to billions of dollars, which we're still far away from. So in the, in the, in the midterm, what we do is we basically look at what sort of partners uh, have a sort of shared vision, a shared mission, have patient capital. And we, we look at opportunities to license the IP that we're incubating to other parties that might seek to develop it. We recently announced a partnership with Apollo Health Ventures, which is in the business of, you know, it's a, it's a longevity VC, but it also engages in sort of company building activities, not dissimilar to Cambrian, for example, where they would actually look at IP that we're incubating and then potentially come in and, and co-develop it. We're also looking at, you know, VitaDAO through the election of agents, actually being able to spin out companies and create lightweight biotech companies that can on their own further raise additional capital with VitaDAO having some skin in the game through IP ownership. And we're also looking at potential partnerships with pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies that are beginning to pivot into longevity, of which there are many. Even some of the large pharmaceutical companies are increasingly looking at aging as a, as a potentially viable uh, therapeutic indication to, to begin to target, whether it's through the proxy of an individual disease or sort of banking on the regulatory environment around treating aging as a disease you know, sort of changing. So, I mean, it, at the moment, yeah, I, I would summarize it as sort of out licensing and, and selling IP. Uh, but in the long term, we really hope to be able to do a lot of things sort of within the de- decentralized science ecosystem as the space broadens and has sort of liquidity to do so through partnerships with organizations like Molecule and like LabDAL, which are also building sort of different foundational architectures and, that, that enable decentralized end-to-end drug development to occur. Thank you very much for that uh, excellent description of the plan. Something I've been wondering about is the the IP ownership that you mentioned, would that be secured as conventional patents or via some other instrument? You mentioned something earlier called an IP NFT. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so the IP NFT is a technology that my company Molecule developed, which basically takes a legal contract. In many cases, this is a sponsored research agreement, which is the typical agreement that let's say if a pharmaceutical company was going to university and wanted to sponsor a piece of research from an academic at that uh, university. They would engage in one of these agreements where there is a sort of scoped range of experiments. Uh, they would provide funding, and in exchange, they would own the intellectual property that results from those experiments. And so traditionally, as, as part of that sponsored research agreement, we would be responsible for filing and holding those patents. And so This is the mechanism that we're operating through currently. You have this sponsored research agreement that is engaged between two parties, typically Molecule, which is a conventional company based in Switzerland, and the university. And then it's actually sub-licensed to this IPNFT framework or to VitaDAO, in many cases via this mechanism. And what happens is that the contract itself has the ability for the party that invests or the party that provides the funding to then further sublicense to another party. So mechanically, what this would look like is that, you know, uh, an organization applies for funding, VitaDAO approves that funding, money is sent, uh, actually fiat currency is sent to the university to begin the research. 
BetaDAO then receives the rights to the IP that results from that from that funding and has the obligation to file a patent and then figure out what to do with that and, and, and move it to market. And the IP NFT framework is basically something that enables an NFT, a smart contract within an IP NFT to cross-reference that real-world legal agreement and have a hash of it on chain. So it's you know, it's actually a relatively primitive model. It's not particularly technologically advanced. All you're doing is basically enabling a real-world legal contract that has a sub-licensing agreement to then be sub-licensed to the ownership of this NFT, which can then be held in a DAO smart contract. So it's just sort of a series of cross-references between smart contract architecture and a real-world legal agreement that creates a sort of digital, let's say, digital IP ownership rights. In the future, one of the things that, that Molecule is really interested in is trying to figure out, when we think about the patent system, what, what is it actually? It's basically a legal way for somebody to claim that they were the first to discover something and then have some right to market exclusivity. In many cases, the industry doesn't work exclusively with patents, right? There's trade secret, there's generic drugs. There are ways to actually commercialize uh, therapeutics that aren't fully reliant on this monopolistic intellectual property system that also has a huge number of caveats and downsides in terms of being anti-competitive, in terms of being anti-collaborative. And so one of the things that we're looking into is, are there ways to actually sort of use technology to create enforceability structures around intellectual property? For example, through programmatic NFTs, by enabling sort of revenue streams to flow to people that, that contribute work or resources and to share, you know, broad equity ownership. And I would say that, you know, that the joke that I normally make is that, you know, the current IP NFT system is sort of like when Netflix used to mail you DVDs, <laughs> we, 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 we need to figure out what the streaming service looks like. And we need to figure out what an on-chain intellectual property system looks like that can go well beyond still all of the burdens that comes with filing intellectual property. And I think that's going to take a lot of technological advancement. But what's interesting about a blockchain is that it's permissionless, it's immutable. You could theoretically have a system on-chain where somebody establishes you know, that they were the first to do an experiment. The NFT itself can also be an access key to a data storage layer, where with, by holding it, you can unlock access to all of the underlying data. And we believe that this system, if we make it sort of interoperable with the current system, and we create a lot of value, there would be some sort of technology-driven ways to create a sort of new intellectual property system that goes beyond what the current standard is with patents. And I would say this is sort of, this is the core work that Molecule is focused on, and, and VitaDAO is really you know, one of the first entities that is really leveraging this as a use case and, and helping us further develop that framework. I'm really excited because VitaDAO is sort of the first thing I've seen that has a chance, being a bit out of the system, that has a chance to really change things long term. Of course, right now we are iterating and, and sort of baby steps, right? Improvements to the system. But I definitely look forward to a future, maybe medium term, where, where patients have incentives and they align incentives. Create, the value created is not only financial, so people can sort of contribute through the fractionalization of an IP NFT, for example. We have this framework that's quite new as well called Friends, a fair, reasonable, ethical and non-discriminatory sub-license. So feel free to check that out on, on our blog, Fractionalizing IP NFTs, I think is called something with, with friends in the, in the title. Um, feel free to, to explore there. You also find a blog post about the pay for success model, which I'm really excited about. Certain things like clinical trials 
don't yet have a business model. So we can create one by having either philanthropic or, or patient groups or even, you know, a government or a uh, life insurance company that has an, uh, an economic incentive to improve health, improve outcomes, to fund as a, as a pay for success only if the trial is successful, only if the therapeutic is successful for initially low hanging fruit, like repurposing, like I mentioned earlier, the, the rapamycin, an exercise trial. So a payer fund can be put up and then just like, yeah, I guess you, you see with X prize, right? You have a prize if you succeed and then people can invest in startups or initiatives that try to reach that outcome. And so in this way, where there wouldn't previously be a financial model or it'd be way, way too far away, you know, moon trot goal. Now the incentives can be created. And of course, starting with baby steps, but then eventually I, I envision all drugs being like this, you know, government puts up, okay, uh, $5 billion for another 10 years without Alzheimer's. If, if a patient already has it or, or if there is a certain biomarker. And so if you can delay that, that is worth to us 5 billion. And so the first company who gets it, oh, of course, it can be a few companies and, and then it's, it's open source. And, and then you can actually have capitalism work to improve the actual creation and, and the economics of, you know, just like with the vaccines, just make it cheaper per pill. But the, all the R and D cost is up till now, up until now is paid on success. With all this talk of NFTs and other instruments, it might be a really good time to talk about the connection between uh, longevity biotech and, and blockchain enthusiasm. As we pointed out earlier in the conversation, there's a, uh, a non-trivial overlap between the two communities. And you, you touched on some of the reasons above, but I, I just wanted to open the floor and ask you, why do you think that is? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I, I, it, there, there are two very similar threads, and this is something that Lawrence pointed out earlier. You know, crypto has long been dismissed by the incumbents, but you tend to have, and increasingly we see this with, you know, institutionals pouring into the space, for example, we have this sort of paradigm shift occurring in, in how we think about finance, how we think about currency. And this, I think, tends to attract people at the fringes and people that are that are highly innovative and tend to look at these sort of new technologies as a way to to just lead to broader innovation, lead to broader access. I think the same is fundamentally true with longevity. You know, you have a certain population of people that are probably interested in longevity because, you know, through a sort of black and white lens where, well, wouldn't it be great to live longer? And I think there's a lot of value to this. And, and you know, maybe it's there's some inherent truth in it as well. But when I think about longevity, I think the thing that excites me is that, you know, I think about how terrible most of modern medicine is and how poorly advanced it is. And what I mean by that is, you know, what we've learned over the past, you know, millennia of traditional medicine, of, and particularly with Western medicine, so the past few hundred years, is that the frameworks that we have are heavily focused on treating disease and, and not preventing them. And if we think about what we can cure today, it's actually very few things. Other than communicable disease or infectious disease, we mostly manage chronic conditions, many of which are age-related. And so I think about longevity as, as a preventative paradigm. I think it's something where if we could deeply understand DNA damage, for example, and DNA repair, we might be able to avoid mutation entirely. You know, and this is very exciting. And I think this this sort of paradigm shift oriented thinking, this innovative type of thinking, 
is really intrinsic to the core communities that are interested in Web3 and the frontier of technology, you know, in computing and currency and in finance, and also those who are interested, you know, in the frontiers of medicine and some of the more even metaphysical questions that that we come to when we think about aging. So I think as a function of both sort of being quite rich in content with with futurists and people who are really looking at you know how technology and how innovation can sort of drive drive humanity forward and drive the way that we govern the way that our our economy works and the way that healthcare works forward. Lawrence, do you have thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, I want to live forever or die trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, I I'm super excited about the future, and I'm also living in the present, enjoying just existence and learning and. You know, this is just biology is initially I thought of biology as something that is fascinating, I guess, because I spent a lot of time in, in hospitals and surgeries and I have this genetic condition. But then I also saw it as a, I don't know, it, it seemed complicated and not as fun. But then I circle back to actually, this is really, really, really fun. And Everything, everything I do and, and the longevity space in general is, it's just amazing to work in, amazing community. And, um, it doesn't make sense to me to do anything else. And, uh, even if we don't catch the longevity escape velocity train in our generation, at least I think that's the, the highest impact thing to work on anyway. Yeah, I mean, what problem is more interesting than than human aging? I mean, for me, it's it's so philosophical, it's so poetic. It's also you get to work at the frontier of biology on on a problem that I think people have been thinking about since you know the dawn of humanity. It's a really really exciting space to be in, and it's one that I think is really really full of, of passionate people looking to make a difference. One hundred percent agreed. That's definitely what gets us up in the morning at BioAge. Um, it's it's been I've been interested in in aging myself since I was around seventeen or eighteen, and that was what drove me to become a biologist and what kind of guided my career. And um, it's been a real pleasure to uh, end up in a crew of people who are very pragmatic and and focused on patient benefit, but also are true believers and and believe in the importance of this question in itself as one of the most fundamental and important uh, questions in in human history and. and as one of you just said, like what better thing to devote one's life to? As we bring our interview to a close, I just want to end on a, an up note, not a productive note. I'm sure by this point, some of our listeners are wondering how they can get involved in VitaDAO. What do you want to tell them? I would say that it's um, like joining a Reddit, but we also have access to capital. So you can actually do things, not just talk. I'm saying that because I want to emphasize how easy and open we are. It's how easy it is to join. You can contribute funds and, uh, you know, anyone can either contribute funds or, or get funding, uh, via proposal. And then if you contribute to work, you also get tokens. So you, you get a say in governing what this organization does. And, you know, this scales much better. It's, uh, we have network effects. We are not like a VC. We don't have that sort of reductionist approach to, to impact through funding. It definitely is an experiment. But um, I definitely am encouraging everyone listening to, for example, start with a small bounty um, source of project. Refer to us a friend or, you know, go through papers, um, conferences. If you see a project working in aging research that could build towards a therapeutic, could have IP, of course, we can incubate that project. 
then just bring it to us, make an introduction, Lawrence at VitaDAO.com, or just join the Discord. It's also fun. Hang out with us. Let us know. And um, if you want to apply for funding, you know, this is much faster than the usual grants that you're used to. Your audience might know that it's just, it's crazy that people, you know, PIs are spending up to 80% of their time uh, writing these bureaucratic, boring grants instead of the high level thinking, you know, actually designing experiments and getting the best ideas funded. And if, if you're a biotech company or you know by the company that would like non-dilutive funding for specific assets, I think that's also an important piece because, you know, in biotech, it's it, me coming from, from tech. I'm just always surprised. I've, I've been super surprised with seeing how in biotech, uh, the dilution is, is crazy. And in longevity, I think it's super important to keep the, the vision of the founders through because you will need to expand label very fast. Otherwise your patent is going to run out, unfortunately for now within the current system. So let us know. Also, if you want to help advance and evaluate projects or, or with negotiation or other things like that, just yeah, come hang out with us for a week in, in the discord. It's, it's fun. It's just a chat. Yeah, try it out. We are very open. You'll be exposed to something completely new. And uh, maybe you'll learn something for your own life or your company. Yeah. Tyler, closing thoughts? Yeah, I would just echo everything that Lawrence has said. I mean, the just join us. It's permissionless. It's easy. It's as simple as clicking a button and, and joining a Discord. And you're going to arrive to a community of 5,000 people with similar interests that are going to welcome you with open arms. And you'll have the chance to really make a meaningful impact towards um yeah advancing longevity science and and this is the goal right the goal is to basically create something democratic and permissionless where anyone that has an interest and a skill set can make a meaningful contribution so yeah i hope that'll resonate with some listeners and they'll consider joining the DAO. well we'll definitely put the relevant links in the show notes for anyone who's interested lawrence ion and tyler galato thank you so much for joining us today absolute pleasure thanks for having us thank you chris Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.